Perceptions podcast. Today's episode is a good example of why this show exists. There are some very confident viewpoints out there held by very smart people that are, on analysis, junk. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. The topic today is science history, specializing in the a part of human history that where nobody thinks any science happened at all, me included, and that would be medieval history. Okay, <laughs> that is the like the, the the benchmark for anyone's concept of where no science touched anybody's life. I got Matt Kirshen here to help me out as my co-host. Matt. That's Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist and long-standing critic of all things religious. He loves describing the medieval period, roughly 500 to 1500, as the Dark Ages, characterized by ignorance with a side order of mysticism and miracles. The period 500 to 1500, the Middle Ages, is in fact one of the most lively periods of world history. I'm not just talking about what was going on around the Mediterranean Basin and the Middle East. One day we have to do an episode on the Byzantine Empire, the best kept secret of human history. Even in Europe in this period, right in the so-called Dark Ages, it wasn't all flat earthers and biblical literalists. In fact, there were very few such people. There was a rich tradition of rational, even scientific, pursuit. But this tradition is almost entirely sidelined by expert scientists like Neil deGrasse Tyson and plenty of others. It's not because they're not great scientists, they are. It's because they're not trained in the only relevant discipline, which isn't science, but history. A professor of science is usually no more competent to tell you about the history of science than a brilliant modern musician is able to tell you about the history of music. This is why so many popular histories of science begin with the Renaissance in the 14th century. Carl Sagan, in his multi-million copy bestseller, Cosmos, included a timeline that showed a few Greek philosophers, like Pythagoras and Plato at the beginning, followed by a wide blank space marked the Dark Ages that didn't end until the 16th century with the arrival of Leonardo da Vinci and Christopher Columbus and all the gang. The basic thesis was that the Greeks and Romans were doing some mathematical and sciencey stuff, but when Rome fell in AD 410, or 473, or 493, depending on which event you choose to date the fall of Rome, that's another episode, Producer Kaylee, the fall of Rome. Yeah, cool. Anyway... <laughs> This uh, catastrophe of the fall of Rome, whenever it happened, ushered in an age of ignorance and superstition, so the story goes, that lasted hmm, roughly a thousand years. Quick chime, when we cover the Byzantine Empire, I'll explain why people living in Greece or Turkey or Egypt, even in the 10th century, still thought they were living in the Roman Empire, and they weren't wrong. Can't wait for that. 
Anyway, apparently in the West, the Dark Ages only started to come to an end with the Renaissance of the 14th century and finally with the Enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries. That's when humanity could return to its love for art, reason and science. Yeah, nah. I'm John Dixon and this is Undeceptions. Undeceptions is brought to you by Zondervan Reflectives, The Beauty Chasers by Timothy Willard. Each episode at Undeceptions, we explore some aspect of life, faith, history, science, culture or ethics that's either much misunderstood or mostly forgotten. And with the help of people who know what they're talking about, we're trying to undeceive ourselves and let the truth out. And if this hour of undeceiving isn't enough, join the Undeceptions Plus community for a lousy $5 Aussie a month. That's US $3.45 or £2.83 if you're in the UK. You'll get extended interviews with my guests, bonus episodes, and tons of other extras. Undeceptions.com forward slash plus. I'm at the wonderful Cambridge University, one of the finest academic institutions in the Western world. And I'm meeting with Seb Falk, a specialist in medieval history and the history of science. I'm meeting him at the labyrinth that is Girton College, a college specifically for women. I've been in many Oxbridge colleges over the years, but this one looks more like a hospital than a university college. There's a reason for that, and Seb Falk can't resist doing a little bit of a history lesson with me as we wind our way to his office. And the reason it was designed like a hospital, supposedly, was um, because if the education of women didn't work out, that they could then easily convert it into a hospital. A mental institution, I believe, was the alternative, because <laughs> the idea that one might be able to profitably the myth about women's higher education has been happily busted. The myth about medieval higher education somehow persists, and Seb is the one to talk to us about it. Dr. Seb Falk is part of the Faculty of History at the University of Cambridge, where he researches and teaches about medieval science, mathematics, and medicine. He studied at Oxford University and was a research fellow at both Girton College and the Bavarian Academy of Sciences and Humanities. And he's also worked at the Whipple Museum of the History of Science, also in Cambridge. Apart from his bunch of scholarly articles, Seb is also the author of The Light Ages, the surprising story of medieval science. Medieval science, okay. The, it's an oxymoron, of course. Um, can you describe for me the popular cliche your book is really set against? So I guess I have in my mind a scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail where King Arthur comes up and uh, the peasant is digging in the mud uh, and uh, challenges King Arthur on the notion of monarchy uh, and presents himself as a member of an autonomous collective. I don't know if you're familiar with the scene. 
What I object to is you automatically treat me like an inferior. Well, I am king. Oh, king, eh? Very nice. And how do you get that, eh? By exploiting the workers. By hanging on to outdated imperialist dogma which perpetuates the economic and social differences in our society. If there's ever going to be any progress... And here's got... some lovely filth down here. Oh, how do you do? How do you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are the Britons? Well, we all are. We are all Britons. And I am your king. I didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. You're fooling yourself. But it's this idea that the film is parodying, in a way, that medieval peasants were uninterested in the world around them. They just spent their lives digging around in the mud with sticks. Uh, and more than that, that even medieval scholars knew nothing about nature and, and more than that, had no interest in nature. Uh, and so my book um, is aimed at undermining cliches like everybody in the Middle Ages thought the world was flat. The medieval church stifled science and stamped on any kind of free thinking. Um, and uh, that people simply had no interest uh, in, in the world around them. Uh, and also that there was no communication. It's often thought, you know, medieval Europe and the Islamic world uh, and India um, were completely disconnected. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to show in my book was how, you know, medieval Christians depended on ideas from other cultures as well. So, um, yes, the, the caricature is of a Dark Ages. Where does this language of the Dark Ages come from? So this is something that's kind of evolved gradually over time. Um, but basically, there have always been uh, times or there have always been writings uh, where people talked about a previous period as being a dark age or sometimes even their own period as being a dark age. You know, people nostalgic for previous mm. golden ages, golden age and dark age mm. sort of sometimes go together. Um, but the reference of the, the Middle Ages as a dark age comes out of the Renaissance really, where the thing that was being reborn in the Renaissance, of course, that's where the word comes from, was the glory of ancient Greece and Rome. And so they wanted to show that... The earliest reference to an age of darkness is found in the writings of Francesco Petrarch, an Italian scholar and poet of the early Renaissance. He was a huge fan of the great men of antiquity, especially people like Cicero, Virgil and Seneca. And in a letter of 1359... Petrarch wrote about how he wished the great Cicero from 1st century BC could look down the corridor of history and see how people like Petrarch and others were reviving Greco-Roman literature and learning. Cicero would rejoice to see the end of the darkness and the night of error, he wrote, and the dawn of the true light. Boom, Petrarch had coined the Dark Ages. Funny thing is, though, Petrarch was a devout believer in Jesus Christ and the church. He was also friendly with the Pope of the day. Not for a second did he blame the church for the Dark Ages. He blamed the barbarians and the Goths who sacked Rome in the 5th or 6th century. The other funny thing about all of this is that the next group to popularise the Dark Ages myth were also devout Christians. My mob, the Protestants, who thought this would be a really cool way to take a swipe at the Catholic period. And that was given kind of added boost by um, Protestant historians, particularly during the Enlightenment, people like Edward Gibbon, 
trying to denigrate the Catholic Church and basically saying anything that was touched by the pre-Reformation Catholic Church was ignorant and was uh, beholden to some kind of authoritarian uh, papacy. Uh, and so uh, that they were sort of trying to set themselves as kind of enlightenment figures, not anti-religious per se, but anti-Catholic Church, uh, that, that um, this was an age of, of superstition and dogma uh, and, uh, and slavish obedience to kind of authority. I mean, you even find that in Martin Luther describes mm. uh, the previous period as, yeah. as dark, um, particularly in that sort of religious uh, Catholic sense. I is the term dark ages used in scholarship anymore? Not really. I mean, I think I've been picked up on this in my book because my book focuses quite a lot on the later Middle Ages. Yeah. And some people say, uh, well, nobody really calls the later Middle Ages the dark ages. They're really talking about the period before the year 1000. Um, and the simple defense, I mean, in a sense, they could, they're right because it is usually used more for the early Middle Ages. But you do still hear people talking about everything before 1500 as a dark age, specifically when they're talking about science in particular. But elsewhere, you, you do still hear it, but not in the scholarship. It's, it's completely gone out of the scholarship. So people would just talk about early medieval. It's really worth pausing on this point. The expression, the Dark Ages, might still be popular amongst the general public, and especially those who want to criticise the church. But in scholarship, like the relevant scholarship, the expression isn't used for the simple reason that it's an inaccurate piece of propaganda. I can't resist offering you one of my all-time favourite passages about this propaganda. It comes from the pen of theologian, historian and philosopher David Bentley Hart. And it's so fun. It deserves our Undeceptions House voice actor, Yannick Laurie. Hence modernity's first great attempt to define itself. An age of reason, emerging from and overthrowing an age of faith. Behind this definition lay a simple but thoroughly enchanting tale. Once upon a time, it went, Western humanity was the cosseted and incurious ward of Mother Church. During this, the age of faith, culture stagnated, science languished, wars of religion were routinely waged, witches were burned by inquisitors, and Western humanity laboured in brutish subjugation to dogma, superstition, and the unholy alliance of church and state. All was darkness. Then, in the wake of the wars of religion that had torn Christendom apart, came the full flowering of the Enlightenment, and with it, the reign of reason and progress. The secular nation-state arose, reduced religion to an establishment of the state, and thereby rescued Western humanity from the blood-steeped intolerance of religion. This is, as I say, a simple and enchanting tale, easily followed and utterly captivating in its explanatory tidiness. Its sole defect is that it happens to be false in every identifiable detail. This tale of the birth of the modern world has largely disappeared from respectable academic literature and survives now principally at the level of folklore, intellectual journalism and vulgar legend. Atheist Delusions 33-34 So what are our main historical sources for the medieval period and particularly for what you're calling medieval science? 
Well, I mean, the, the kinds of things that people held on to um, in terms of documentary sources, written sources, were uh, legal documents, administrative documents, um, uh, records of uh, disputes or judgments, um, and then chronicle sources as well. Um, so essentially historical accounts that were written either at the time or by people looking back, and then sort of biographical or hagiographical accounts uh, of important people, which again sometimes were written at the time and sometimes were written a little bit later. Um, Hagiography is just highly laudatory biographical literature, usually of some great hero or saint. Hagiographies tend to be wildly biased, but they almost always contain some genuine historical memory. And those can all be sort of rich sources for scientific knowledge, particularly where, or rich resources for historians studying the history of science, particularly where, you know, a, a, an abbot or a, a monk or a, um, a scholar was... Uh, an important religious figure. I'm thinking, for example, of Robert Grossetest, who became Bishop of Lincoln in the early 13th century, but also was a great writer on um, scientific subjects. And we know quite a lot about him because he was Bishop of Lincoln. Um, but, um, you know, he also wrote these texts. So there are also quite a lot of scientific texts that survived. Now, the trouble is, of course, or anything that happened 1,000, 1,500 years ago um, survival is a matter of chance, and particularly with all of the kind of historical vicissitudes that have happened in between. I'm thinking in this country of things like uh, the dissolution of the monasteries. The monasteries had some of the greatest libraries uh, in this country, and many of their manuscripts were sold off uh, at the dissolution or, or just used for all kinds of things like starting fires and so on. Um, uh, and also, even at the time, people weren't necessarily very good at preserving information that they considered to be superseded. You know, you've got precious parchment, you might as well scrape off the, the ink and rewrite on it. Um, or, or, as I say, you know, there's no point storing it if it's, it's not useful information anymore. Although they were pretty good about, about storing things. And then, of course, we have archaeological evidence, um, particularly instruments, um, but also architectural evidence uh, in terms of the way the buildings were constructed and, and so on. Um, but we have to be a little bit careful with that because um, survival can be biased in the sense of when things are really used, they get used up. Uh, and medieval people were extremely good about recycling. So when something gets broken, they don't just leave it for, for a later historian to find. If it's metal, they melt it down and recast it into something else. If it's wood, it might get put on the fire or whatever it might be. Um, so sometimes we have to wonder whether the instruments that survive in museums today were actually ones that were less useful. Um, so, so there's a, a little bit of problem with that. There's a lot of evidence missing. I guess it's a bit like that with almost all periods of ages past. And some seize upon this absence of evidence, or at least limited evidence, as evidence of absence, as proof there was no good medieval science. In 1988, Daniel Borstein's book on the history of science, The Great Discoverers, labelled the medieval period as the great interruption to humanity's advance. In 1993, William Manchester's A World Lit Only by Fire described medieval times as, quote, a melange of incessant warfare, corruption, lawlessness, obsession with strange myths, and an almost impenetrable mindlessness. In 2002, Charles Freeman wrote in The Closing of the Western Mind that it was 
Hard to see how mathematics, science, or their associated disciplines could have made any progress in this medieval atmosphere. So I had to ask Seb if he's just being a quarrelsome gadfly, especially giving his book the title, The Light Ages. Histories of science uh, usually start with the 16th century. This is something you point out in the book. Uh, are you just being quarrelsome, wanting to push it back a few more centuries? A bit. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think there is. There are certain people, you know, when they say, "Why is the Renaissance a mistaken picture? Why? What's wrong with this idea that modern science or modern culture starts in the 1500s or in the 1600s?" Um, and then they say, "Well, actually, I think modern culture started in the 1100s." Well, in a way, they're just playing the same game, you know. That then the people from the ninth century say, "Well, what about the Carolingian Renaissance?" And you know, you end up with successive renaissances. And so I suppose the big Oh, I can't resist. Sorry guys. The Carolingian Renaissance is one of the other best kept secrets of history. And yes, producer Kaylee, please write that down. Pen in hand. I can't see you doing it. <laughs> okay, great. Excellent. Thank you. Carolingian is just the word for the period created by Charles the Great, Charlemagne, the ruler of Southern Europe in the late 700s and early 800s. He wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. He tried to learn to read and write, but apparently wasn't awesome at it. But he had the wisdom to gather up all the brilliant scholars of the day, bring them to his court and set them loose on the public of Europe to establish schools focused on seven subjects. Grammar, logic, rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. Only then could people move on to the advanced subjects like theology, law, philosophy, medicine, and so on. By the end of his reign in the early 800s, there were literally hundreds of schools across Europe. It's the beginning of modern education, and that's partly why they speak of the Carolingian Renaissance. Okay, back to Seb. And so I suppose the bigger point is to say, well, actually, yes, there are periods in history when there have been profound change in both technology, but also in the ways that people think. Um, but that doesn't mean that everything that came before is worthless. And it doesn't undermine the overall picture where change is extremely gradual. And not only do we find the seeds of important ideas in earlier centuries, but also ideas that we might think get superseded actually have a long afterlife and carry on being believed. I'm thinking, for example, of humoral theory in medicine or astrology. These are ideas which you might think are discredited by discoveries that are made um, during, say, the, the 17th century and 18th century, but actually carry on being believed by, by large numbers of people. Humoral theory, by the way, goes back to the ancient Greeks, who reasoned that someone's temperament was influenced by the four liquids. Humor is Latin for liquid. The four liquids that were in the human body, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. The Greeks thought that the ratios of these liquids in our bodies determined our personalities. Uh, we get the personality description of someone as sanguine from this. A person who was cheerful had strong doses of sanguis, blood. Anyway, because humoral theory was in all the ancient textbooks, People believed it for centuries, not unlike the way some personality theories are still popular, even if somewhat debunked. 
The medieval church did assume the truth of humoral theory, but only because it was in the long-standing textbooks. People believed in a stable eternal universe for centuries as well, until Big Bang Theory called that into question. Okay, but isn't there something more fundamental about the medieval mind that hindered the progress of natural science? Uh, no, is the short answer. I mean, of course, people have priorities. So, uh, you know, often people make much of this, this quotation by Tertullian, the church father, who, who said, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? In other words, the provinces of philosophy and the provinces of um, theology should be separate and, and, and each should respect the other, or, or certainly the philosophers should respect the theologians. But you've only got to read a little bit of Tertullian to realise he's citing the previous philosophers left, right and centre, He's an expert in the rhetoric of the time. And, yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, and the church fathers were, were very clear on this, that, you know, pagan knowledge could be put to, and indeed should be put to use for Christian purposes. And of course, sometimes it needs to be made to fit, you know, the obvious example being Aristotle's idea that the universe was eternal. It had no beginning and no end. And that obviously didn't fit with uh, Christian belief. So, some little subtle changes have to be made. But the basic point is that it's often stated that the church was entirely uninterested in studying nature. And that's a complete perversion of the truth because the purpose of any kind of knowledge gathering by Christians was to understand the mind of God. And it was commonly stated that God had spoken of his purpose for mankind in two books, the book of scripture and the book of nature. And thereby by studying nature, you could understand God's purposes for the world. So, it, you know, Christians had a, a direct motivation for studying nature. On top of that, of course, there's this idea that the Bible has within it certain ideas about creation and about the structure of nature. And it behoves Christians to think about those things a little bit. And where they kind of conflict with ideas that other people are putting forward, to think about those things and, and to be rational about them. And again, theologians were very clear about being rational in their responses to ideas about nature. Um, who are the people in, in the earlier period who were doing something like science? Well, something like science is the, is, is the question. The big figure in kind of the, the early Middle Ages, the Anglo-Saxon period is, is Bede, mm. um, in, up in the north of England in, in Jarrow who did really important work on the calendar and time reckoning. And that's kind of, I think, an important... Yes, we are going to do an episode on the Venerable Bede. We're gearing up to talk to a top Oxford professor about him. She's fabulous and I can't wait for you to meet her. Anyway, Bede lived in England in the late 600s and early 700s. He's one of those polymaths who proves to contemporary historians that we didn't even have to wait until the Carolingian Renaissance in the next century to have academics, clergy who were academics, who had expert knowledge of languages, observational astronomy, and certainly in Bede's case, an encyclopedic knowledge of previous history. He wrote the first history of the English people, and it is a treasure trove of facts, real, live facts about battles, economy, customs, religion, and language of the Romans, the Angles, the Jutes, the Saxons, and the Celts. It's amazing. And that's kind of, I think, an important thing to, to, to base a, a study around, because I think that the Christians who are doing science in this period are really interested in 
calculating the date of Easter, in the chronology of, of the Bible and working out you know, what, what year we're in, essentially. Um, and in order to understand the date of Easter, of course, because Easter is essentially a commemoration of something that took place in the Jewish calendar, and the Jewish calendar was lunisolar, you need to understand the cycles of the moon and the sun. So that then leads people to, to understanding of all kinds of phenomena uh, in nature. Um, but also, um, uh, you know, Isidore of Seville should probably be mentioned as being very uh, sort of iconic in the sense even of, earlier than Bede is yes, not? yeah yes, sixth century mm. um, uh, writing his his etymologies uh, which does mean the same as what um, what what etymology means today but it's it's an encyclopedia essentially of, of knowledge going back a bit further Isidore of Seville was a Spanish scholar and church cleric and his book Etymologies was a vast encyclopedia of knowledge about anthropology, cosmology, architecture, history, and agriculture. It appeared in 20 volumes, and it lays claim to being the longest-lasting reference book in all of human history. One of Isidore's colleagues, another brainiac cleric of the period named Braulio of Zaragoza, described Isidore's work as a compendium of practically everything that is necessary to know. Where do you place someone like Alcuin of York in that transition from the classical learning to the modern period? Yes, folks, I slipped Alcuin of York into an episode. Sort of alongside Bede in many ways as, as being someone who is within this kind of post-Roman Christian tradition, but also interestingly because he's kind of part of the Carolingian Renaissance, thinking in terms of education and the value of education and, and who gets to be educated. Uh, and I think this, this is a sort of key feature about um, learning being spread even slightly outside the, the monasteries and, and into schools and, and that monarchs should be appropriately educated and so on. Um, Not that they were very successful with Charlemagne. No, well, they did their best. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but also Alcuin of York is, is kind of a good example of somebody who traveled as well. Um, and this is something I think that people often forget that Medieval scholars, of course, not everybody in the Middle Ages could travel widely, but medieval scholars had the opportunity to yeah, travel from York to Rome yeah, and, yeah. and back, and uh, yeah, extraordinary. Yeah. From Alcuin, uh, you often get this reference to the seven liberal arts, and um, you, you write about them in your book. Can you tell us? You know, lots of people have no idea what the seven liberal arts are, or let alone the idea that they were being studied in the 8th century mm. um, and, and before, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, the liberal arts is certainly to kind of, I'm not sure what how the, the university setup is in, in Australia, but certainly in America, you know, they still kind of form part of university life, right? This idea of a kind of liberal arts course, uh, which sadly, actually, in, in the UK, we don't kind of do so much. But they came out of essentially late Roman curriculums, uh, liberal meaning suitable for a free person to, to study. And the arts, of course, were not the humanities narrowly defined as we would today, uh, but, but kind of really any subject of study. Um, uh, and they, there was some argument about what they included, but essentially they were narrowed down to seven. Uh, three arts of um, speech and argumentation, namely grammar, uh, rhetoric, and logic, uh, or dialectic, uh, and then the four arts of number, mathematics, which were arithmetic, uh, geometry, music, and astronomy. Um, and, and music was seen as a kind of application 
of arithmetic in terms of the way it, it sort of well, how harmony ratios. works and so on yeah exactly yeah. and astronomy was seen as an application of geometry so they mm. sort of come in two pairs and those were the sort of core of the school's curriculum and the way that that uh, monasteries structured their learning uh, up to and through the foundation of the universities in the in the 12th century and then it gets a little bit distorted by the arrival of uh, Aristotle's uh, many books, which were structured rather differently. And so, although that said, the universities kind of slightly keep their divisions into these seven arts and Aristotle is sort of slotted in where, where possible uh, for, for quite a long time. What came after the seven liberal arts? Like, let's just say you were a very successful student. What was the next subject or the one after that? Right. So um, in the universities, the basic structure, although I think this is sometimes a bit oversimplified, is that there was an arts faculty. So everybody studied the liberal arts. And then that was what most people did. And then they left university and they went on and did something else. But if you carried on, uh, you could move into one of three higher faculties, namely theology, uh, law and medicine. And those were basically the, the, the three subjects. Um, law, of course, was useful for administrators as well as you know, actual um, lawyers and, and judges and so on. Um, uh, and, and theology, of course, prepared you for a career in the church um, and, um, and medicine, um, obviously, to, to be a physician. Um, but uh, the, the arts that were learned were carried on um, in those later faculties, for example, uh, as you know, astronomy would have been quite useful for a physician. Uh, you know, the, the arts of grammar and rhetoric would have been extremely useful for a theologian and so on. By the way, I'm excited to say that I'm moving. I mean, I'm right in the middle of moving to a university that proudly continues this tradition of the liberal arts. Wheaton College, just outside Chicago, has appointed me to the Jean Kwame Distinguished Chair, my professor thingy, as Darling Buff describes it, where I'll get to join in with the work of Alcuin of York, Isidore of Seville, uh, the Venerable Bede and the rest of the gang in helping students think about how all the disciplines of knowledge from Latin grammar to cosmology, illuminate and are illuminated by Christ and his kingdom. It is such a privilege. And Wheaton College is encouraging me to keep this little podcast thingy going. So that's what we'll do after the break. This episode of Underceptions is sponsored by Zondervan's new book, The Beauty Chases, by Timothy Willard. We asked him to put it in a sentence. What's the book about? When I looked around the church and even in my own life, I looked at how wonder has kind of dissipated from, from the church. And this is, a, I think, a big problem in the church and it can be even in per- people's lives. So The Beauty Chasers is about a lifestyle change of bringing worship and wonder back into your life. What does he hope readers are going to take away from the book? There is a um, there's a physicist named Alan Lightman, and he was on both um, both faculties of humanities, both at MIT and Harvard. I'm like the only person who's ever done this, and he's brilliant, and he's even a poet and a novelist. And he gives this story actually when he was on vacation, watching the birth of ospreys from the back deck of his um, vacation home in the summer. And so he's watching these ospreys take their first flight, okay? And they fall out of the nest and then the one just, you know, opens its wings and comes down and shoots out right at him and is looking right at him. And he said in that moment, he like looked into the eyes of the osprey 
And he says in that moment, he didn't really understand what he was experiencing. And this is a physicist. He's a natural, he's a physicalist, a materialist. And so there's answers for everything, but he didn't have an answer for that feeling that he had when he saw that baby Osprey look him in the eye and then shoot up past him and take flight. And so he talks about this numinous, almost haunting nature of beauty in this flight of the Osprey. And what's really interesting is Alan Lightman is a atheist. He's somebody who doesn't believe in God. Um, I wouldn't say he's a militant atheist at all, but I think he leaves room for wonder. And you find all kinds of people doing this. They look at these things that seem like natural phenomenon or just everyday wonders and beauties. And they, when they really get deep into it, they go, you know what? There is something here and I want to I wanna leave room for that. I think those are the kinds of things that allow us to ask questions and go, you know what? If the world is filled with so much wonder and things that we don't understand, unanswerable questions like Alan Lightman calls them, that I feel like that people who are searching or maybe who are on the fringe or whatever might find in this book something they can look at and go, oh, okay, I see what Tim's kind of getting at. And maybe if I can get out into nature myself and look and take the time and slow my pace, maybe I'll find what Alan Lightman seems to be finding. Timothy Willard's new book, The Beauty Chasers, obviously fits right into what we're talking about in this episode. It's another great book to go and check out and dig deeper into this subject. You can order it at Amazon right now or head to zondervan.com for more. In Tanzania, over a third of girls are married before the age of 18. It's often because there aren't many other options. Almost 70% of children aged 14 to 17 in the country aren't enrolled in secondary education. And in a culture that doesn't highly value women, school is a really low priority for them. It's considered much more useful for a girl to be managing the home than traveling the often long distances to go to school. So they're pushed to be a homemaker as soon as possible. Anglican Aid is working to prevent this with local Christians in Tari May in the Mara region of Tanzania. What they're doing is offering local young women an alternative. They want to build the Tari May Girls Secondary School, which when complete will offer places to about 800 girls, giving them the opportunity to complete their secondary education, keeping them at school and avoiding young marriages. You can help Anglican Aid in this important work, valuing women and championing education. It's an organisation I really trust. Go to anglicanaid.org.au to give today. Within these walls, men come to seek God. He has come to seek a killer. We found the body horribly mutilated under a window which was... Uh, which was found closed. Somebody told you. A man of reason in a world of blind faith. Yes, yeah, small blood here. You mean that he committed suicide? 
You're listening to the trailer for a film that perfectly captures the tension between church and science that the Dark Ages apparently represented. Based on the novel by Umberto Eco, The Name of the Rose stars Sean Connery as a friar famous for his reasoning powers, who's sent to investigate a death in a famous church library. It turns out monks are being murdered because they've been reading a book by Aristotle on comedy, and the saintly librarian who's killing them believes laughter undermines faith in God. It's a really moody film, recommended for that reason, but it's almost entirely wrong about the medieval church's approach to both learning and laughter. We'll have to do something on ancient and medieval comedy another time. It is a big area of research. But Seb Folk says there are learned church figures of this period that we really ought to know about. Can we talk about some specific figures? Richard of Wallingford and his clock. What's the significance of him in this story? Richard of Wallingford has been described as as the greatest English astronomer of the Middle Ages, or even by some people, the greatest English scientific figure of the Middle Ages. He was a monk. He was born, I believe, in 1292, something like that, and you had the very end of the 13th century, and he died in 1335. Um, He was an abbot of St Albans, which was the wealthiest monastery or one of the wealthiest monasteries in England at the time, just a a day's uh, walk uh, north of London and in the sort of triangle between uh, London and Oxford and Cambridge, the sort of centres of um, learning and wealth uh, in in southern England. Um, And St Albans was uh, patronised by monarchs throughout the Middle Ages. Um, So he's a, a key kind of monastic figure. Um, and while he's a student at Oxford, uh, he in the, in the 1320s, he writes uh, some really important astronomical treatises, uh, one in particular on the Albion, which was a scientific instrument, a kind of uh, astronomical computer. Um, and a lot of astronomical ideas in this period were really driven forward and, and, and shown and calculated through instruments. Uh, so instruments were more than just uh, devices to find out new knowledge. There were also ideas to demonstrate knowledge, ideas to uh, instruments. They were they were tools for teaching and they were tools for demonstration and and um, uh, and uh, calculation as well as observation as we would think of them. The medieval era was an incredibly inventive period when it came to mathematical computations. The drive to create ever more accurate tables of the mathematics of the planetary bodies led to the setting of our modern calendar, known there in medieval Britain, but resisted by many other nations right up until the 18th century. And Richard of Wallingford had a particular interest in measuring time. So he was a very interesting character, born the son of a blacksmith, uh, so not from a wealthy background, but spotted at an early age, educated, became abbot, and then made this fantastic clock for the abbey, which was seen as a kind of great wonder of science, uh, both in the period and and for a couple of hundred years afterwards, before it was uh, almost certainly destroyed at the dissolution of the monasteries again. Was it pretty accurate? Can we, uh, can we tell? We can't tell for sure because none of the none of the clocks survived. I mean, uh, these early clocks were not very accurate in our terms. Um, no, they didn't show seconds or anything, um, and didn't even show minutes, in fact. Um, but what they showed was the motions of the planets. And what the Wallingford clock did that was so amazing was it was much more about much more than telling the time. In fact, it told the time in three different ways. It told the 
equal hours as we use them today that we would be familiar with. It told the unequal hours, which was an older system, but it's still a very useful system in the period where there were always 12 hours between sunrise and sunset, and then always another 12 hours between sunset and the next sunrise, so that the hours, the daytime hours, were longer in the summer and shorter in the winter. And that was very useful because most of what you had to do, you did during the day. So, so it, it makes a lot of sense. And then a third system that this clock showed uh, was the system of true time that even clocks today don't show. And most people are unaware of the fact that actually the days are not all 24 hours because uh, of the tilt of the Earth's axis um, uh, and, and also the fact that the Earth goes around the Sun in an elliptical orbit. Uh, the, the hours can vary in length by uh, up to about 30 seconds per day and those, those differences can accumulate to a difference in time of about 15 minutes um, at certain times a year. So um, his Wallingford's clock showed that true time, uh, and as far as we know, did so quite accurately. Then there's John Westwick, who was born the son of a peasant, but who was eventually educated by the church and went on to do some incredible science in the 1300s. So uh, John Westwick, John of Westwick, was, was not a household name, and that's kind of the point in my book, because one of the things I wanted to show was that science doesn't proceed, proceed as this kind of parade of great men. It's much more about kind of incremental contributions by often forgotten and, 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 and often nameless figures. Um, so John Westwick was, a, was an ordinary monk. Um, he was a monk at St Albans at the same abbey that Richard of Wallingford was abbot of, uh, but a couple of generations later, so he was, uh, would have been born probably sometime in the 1350s. Um, we don't know a huge amount about his life, um, but he had a fairly eventful life by the standards of most monks, who of course took this vow of stability where they were supposed to stay in the monastery most of the time. Um, but he probably studied at Oxford University because many of the monks of St Albans did, and he clearly obtained quite a high-level education in astronomy. But he also went up to Tynemouth, Tynemouth, um, on the coast overlooking the North Sea, just down the river from Newcastle, which was a daughter house, a dependent house of St Albans. But either way, he was very keen to leave uh, because he signed up for this disastrous 1383 crusade, which didn't go to the Holy Land, it went to Flanders. It was a sort of episode in the Hundred Years' War between England and France, uh, and the crusade was a complete disaster. Uh, and then we find John Westwick in London uh, 10 years later in, in 1392, um, where he uh, wrote instructions for an astronomical instrument. So for me, he was a very interesting character because he is a monk. He's, a, as far as we know, a reasonably ordinary monk, although he had this fairly eventful life. Um, and he writes this instructions in Middle English, the kind of growing language of Chaucer uh, at the time, for how to make an instrument to compute the positions of the planets, to find where the planets are for any time, past or future. I mean, someone like him is going way beyond just trying to work out accurately when Easter is. Mm. What's fueling his scientific energy? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. And, and in a way, we'll never know the answer to that question. I mean, you might say, as people have, this is just the simple scientific desire to find stuff out to be ever more precise. And we do see that in some of his tables that he computes, for example, which are just extraordinarily precise, far more precise than is necessary. So there's kind of a drive and urge just to get the right answer. 
The calculations John Westwick employed to work out the apogee of Saturn, the point at which Saturn is furthest away from the Earth, are astoundingly accurate. Here's how Seb Folk describes it in his book. Slowly though the apogees moved, their locations underpinned all planetary motions, and the slow drift of the apogees, like everything else, was measured from the baseline root values. That is why, underneath the main table, John wrote out a smaller table of these radices for easy reference. Its title, in the Latin John continued to use for his table headings, is Mean Apogees at the Time of Christ at London. You might well wonder why any astronomer would care to calculate these apogees down to the level of sexagesimal ninths. These are unimaginably tiny fractions. The 37 that appears in John's column of ninths for one day's motion of the apogees is equal to one ninety-eight quadrillionth part of a complete circle. That's 98 with 15 zeros after it. It would take approximately 750 billion years for these daily 37s to accumulate to even a degree's difference in the longitudes of the apogees. Such precision clearly does not reflect observational accuracy, but it came from calculations carried out by standard methods in accordance with Ptolemaic theory. The maths that people like Westwick are doing in their heads is mind-blowing. There's probably also something spiritual behind it. Then there's what you might say, although we don't see it ever explicitly in his writing, but because of the genre, you wouldn't expect to, that there may be a kind of devotional motivation here, that this is seeking ever purer understanding of, of God's earth. And we don't, as I say, I don't have kind of direct evidence for that, but one wouldn't expect it in the genre in the same way that, you know, religious scientists today don't put God into their writing. But, you know, you've got to say that it's, it's perhaps there in the background. Let's press pause. I've got a five-minute Jesus for you. Jesus talked a lot about wisdom. In fact, in Luke 7, he even identified himself as wisdom. Mostly, he meant skillful insight into how to live in God's world. The genius of the creator is imprinted on the creation, so it makes sense that there is a genius way to behave in the world. But the wisdom tradition he stood within as a Jew was much broader than that. Skillful knowledge of the world itself was wisdom. If the divine intelligence is imprinted on the world, then knowing about the world matters. Way back in the Old Testament, we're told repeatedly that the world functions not in a haphazard manner, the way the pagans thought, but in accordance with deep rational principles from God's own rational mind, which by God's grace, our trained human wisdom can discover, at least in part. The pinnacle of this tradition in the Old Testament was Solomon. King Solomon, around the 10th century BC. And it's fascinating that Solomon is described not so much as ethically wise. He ended up being quite an ethical disaster. But he was described as wise in the sense that he studied the creation itself in order to know the mind of the creator. So in 1 Kings 4, we get this strange statement about Solomon studying nature. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight 
and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Now, Jesus himself refers to all of this when he says in a passage in Matthew 12 and Luke 11, quote, the queen of the south, maybe Ethiopia, came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. This wisdom theology, in the sense of searching out the genius of creation because it reflects the genius of the creator, was hugely important for the later church's approach to learning. In practice, it meant that learning about God's world is in itself an act of worship because it's searching out the signs of God's own wisdom that are imprinted in the physical creation. So learning about the motion of the planets, about animals, logic, and even musical harmony was seen as a holy task. Far from stunting intellectual curiosity, the ancient and medieval wisdom theology propelled people like Isidore of Seville in the 7th century to learn and write about practically everything that is necessary to know. The modern world has reaped the benefits of that old wisdom theology, even though many today scorn the very intellectual framework that first gave us what we now think of as science. You can press play now. You write in your book, and you know, I'm going to quote you back at you, uh, of the important role of monks in the story of science and how science and religion in this period went hand in hand. Now, that's going to strike some of my more sceptical listeners as bizarre and implausible and completely contrary to what we all know. Well, I mean, monks had the opportunity and the motive to study science, right? They had, we've already talked about the motive, um, they, they uh, you know, wanted to understand the mind of God, um, and they may have had, you know, like all people, you know, monks are uh, extraordinary in some ways, but, but they're still people. Um, they wanted to find stuff out. They were curious. They wanted to know things. Uh, that's not specifically a religious motivation, but, you know, it's, they, they have that motivation like other people. Um, and then they had the opportunity in that monasteries were far from all wealthy, but many monasteries were very wealthy. Uh, most monasteries had a library of some sort, and of course the main books in those monastic libraries were religious books, but they weren't exclusively religious books, they often had scientific books. Uh, monks loved to produce books, that was their main job, uh, apart from praying, was the production uh, of those books, and sometimes those books were not very much read, but sometimes they were. Um, and so, you know, even, I wouldn't say that all monks are interested in science, no, not at all, but certainly, you know, some monks were very interested in science. Um, and we get the production and the copying, and, and then if you get copying of books, then you get commentary on books, so ideas are kind of developed. Not in the same way, perhaps, as we would today, because we don't have so much, you know, if you want to read a book, you don't copy it out, um, but that was very much kind of what happened in the Middle Ages. So a large uh, amount of the monk's work 
when they weren't praying, because they can't pray the whole time, um, was particularly in, in wealthier monasteries where they had people to do the kind of day-to-day -day work for them, you know, the production of food and the maintenance of the buildings and so on, which, you know, in perhaps the earliest days of monasticism would have been done by the monks themselves. They were done essentially by lay employees um, a lot of the time. Uh, and so the monks have more time for studying, more time for contemplation. Again, most of that studying is of religious texts, but there's still room for, for studying science. And it turns out a competition between different arms of the church actually provoked advances in education. The Franciscan and Dominican orders of the church lived out in the communities among the people. Uh, the Franciscans were all about helping the poor and the Dominicans were about opposing false teaching. Both were great supporters of education because their friars needed to be good preachers. This posed a little problem to the other great team of religious men, the Benedictines, probably the most influential group of all in their first 1,000 years. Benedictines were at first sceptical of the universities because young pious students were in danger of being corrupted by the gambling and drinking and worse that goes on at the university, even in the Middle Ages. But the Benedictines soon realised they were going to lose out to these other teams of friars because the Franciscans and Dominicans were offering a better path to higher learning. So this spurred on the Benedictines to strengthen their ties with the universities. And they began to see that university-trained monks could bring back valuable knowledge to the monasteries, not just theological learning, but the latest advances in medicine, arithmetic, anything the universities had to offer. Thanks to religious competition, the medieval period saw a church-sponsored education race that had far-reaching implications for the world of science. You've mentioned already two instruments, but I, I want you to try and, is it possible to describe them in an audio <laughs> broadcast, the, the astrolabe and the Albion? I mean, can you help us picture what, what these were meant to be? Yeah, so the astrolabe is the kind of classic instrument of, of the Middle Ages. It's uh, multifunctional devices. Basically, it's a brass disc and it fits into the palm of your hand. You, you know, they vary in size from about 10 centimeters, which would you know, genuinely easily fit into the palm of my hand uh, in, in diameter, up to about 30 centimeters or one foot in, in diameter. Um, and it's a brass disc um, with, a, with a ring on one side that you can hold it by and hold it up so that it hangs vertically. Um, and uh, over that disc, you have a sort of cutout uh, design um, of kind of quite intricate brass swirling figures and shapes and uh, and uh, and pointers uh, and then over that uh, a ruler. So the whole thing is pierced through the center with a hole and then a pin is put through that hole and everything pivots around that center. So you've got this this brass circle and then all of these moving parts moving around the center of that brass circle. Uh, just like a clock, of course, and there's a reason why. Uh, an analog clock, I mean, of course, if listeners are still familiar with those things. Um, uh, 
And, um, and there's a reason why clocks look like astrolabes, because clocks descend from astrolabes. So one of the main functions of an astrolabe was to tell the time, but it could do much more than that. It could help you locate stars, it could tell you when the sun was going to rise on any, on any given day, or, or when a certain star would be at a certain point in the sky. So it was really a model of the heavens. So in those terms, it's much more than a practical device. It's also a kind of, like a, like a globe, but, but portable and multifunctional. Um, it could also, with an astrolabe, if you knew what you were doing, you could calculate the height of a building, um, you could, uh, in principle, tell the depth of a well. Um, there's a lot of different things you can do with it, but all around functions of geometry and astronomy, um, which, were, which were really valuable and, and also, of course, important, as I've already said, for, for physicians to understand the motions in the heavens. Um, so it's a kind of tool of knowledge and it's also a symbol of knowledge. So for many people, it becomes a... Um, a kind of status symbol, something that people use to show off. Uh, everybody wants the kind of the latest astrolabes, and you see that they um, have uh, kind of designs included in them, which reflect fashions in archaeology or um, you know jewelry making and that kind of thing. So a lot of the best astrolabe makers were also goldsmiths. So you find little motifs of animals or tulips or whatever it might hmm. be. And what about the um, Albion or the all by one? The all-by-one, yeah. The, this is not something you can carry in your palm. No. Um, well, the Albion was, was uh, designed by Richard of Wallingford, and it's the ultimate astronomical compendium. So it does, it's kind of a slide rule and an astrolabe and a calculator. It computes the positions of the planets. Um, but it's much more um, about doing calculations geometrically, whereas an astrolabe is sort of a model of the heavens. It's a bit like what a map is to a globe an astrolabe would be to a, a planetarium or an orrery, if people are familiar with those things. The Albion is much more about sort of a calculating device. So it, you couldn't really look at it and see the heavens in the same way as you can when you look at an astrolabe, if you know what you're doing. But it was, you know, truly multifunctional. And a lot of astronomers used instruction manuals for these instruments, wrote instruction manuals for these instruments as ways of showing their knowledge, ways of showing the theories and the ideas that they had about the motions of the planets, which were extremely complicated, of course, because in a world where everything goes around the Earth, you need to account for multiple motions. And here's an important point. The medieval astronomers, the church astronomers, were wrong about the Earth being the center of the universe and the sun revolving around it. But in another sense, they were still right. You touched on a, a point just then that I think a lot of listeners will want to be asking. They were fundamentally wrong. <laughs> with the, uh, They hadn't uh, caught on to a heliocentric universe, solar system. So what's the value of all this when their, you know, their, their basic operating principle that everything revolves around the Earth was just flat out wrong? How is this a step towards science? Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing to say is that astrolabes... Um, and, and other devices like that still work. Uh, mm. Even though they're modeled on a, on a geocentric cosmos, you can still use them today to accurately tell the time in the same way as you can still use a sundial uh, to tell the time. And you know, many people will have seen a sundial out and about or even have one at home um, and, and be able to tell the time with it um, because uh, they are measuring relative position. They're measuring angles, they're not measuring distances. Um, and so um, whether the Earth is going around the Sun or the Sun is going around the Earth, it makes no difference to the angles. Uh, so uh, it's still useful knowledge. Um, and then to answer your bigger question, 
uh, about you know what, what what does all this lead to? Well, it leads to people asking more questions, greater precision, greater measurements. Uh, you know, there's, the, the Middle Ages is a period of great kind of refinement of ideas and instantiation of ideas. So they build these instruments to try and model these ideas, and then they try and make the instruments as good as possible and as user-friendly as possible. And then they say, well, this doesn't quite work, so do I need to tweak my ideas They slightly? all knew some, there was something funny yeah. going on, didn't well, they? Well, there was always, you know, I mean, partly the problem is that a lot of these motions are incommensurable. So in other words, um, the cycle of the moon doesn't fit precisely into the cycle of the Earth and the sun. Um, so, so how are you going to kind of make that as precise as possible? But then they all were also... There's a ton more about the mathematics and astronomy of the Middle Ages. We'll make the full interview with Seb Folk available in the Underceptions Plus stream. But the key idea is that intellectuals from the time of the Greek astronomer Ptolemy had sort of added a fudge to the maths to allow for their failure to fit the planets into circular orbits. Uh, the point is, medieval scientists knew it was a fudge. And so they kept on searching for the true model, pushing further and further until they got there with Copernicus and Galileo. So there's lots of interesting work that's done there. But fundamentally, they do more and more observations. The observations get more and more precise. They come up with new instruments, above all, really monumental size instruments to measure shadow motion. So there's the motions of the heavens um, that you can sort of observe by looking at the shadows moving um, to really, really fine degrees of precision and start to notice that, um, you know, the models, models need a tweak. And then the kind of geometrical ideas I've been talking about are really useful. So when you come to Copernicus in the 16th century, you see he's using observations going back a long time um, that were made uh, by people throughout the Middle Ages and before, as well as geometric ideas, uh, some of which appear to have come from um, further east, from the Islamic world, possibly via Jewish intermediaries. Um, and so all of these kind of, this is what my point about science not being a parade of great men, all of these contributions are incremental. They all add something of value. Uh, and Copernicus has the kind of genius insight that, oh, you know what? I think this should be around the sun rather than around the earth, and I reckon I can make it work better. Now, in a way, that's the least important part of it because that's just a sort of momentary flash rather than a lot of work. The fact is, a historian of science like Seb Folk sees what many in the contemporary world don't see. The Church of the Middle Ages was the great storehouse of knowledge, not just knowledge about theology and canon law and stuff like that, but about astronomy, music, rhetoric, logic, and much more. And there's no way you can drive a wedge between the monks' Christian faith and their passion for knowing stuff about the world. To these medieval zealots, these are the same thing, basically. Love for God fueled zeal to know God and zeal to know God's works in the world. It's all worship. Whatever one makes of religion itself, this is just the fact of medieval history, even if historians like Seb have a difficult time convincing the modern world about all this stuff. I have a final question. It might be my most difficult. Uh, so you're at a, you're at a dinner party uh, with uh, you know, friends and acquaintances, and, and one of them, you know, after the second or third Chardonnay, mouths off about the ignorant dark ages. Have you developed a pithy and polite response? Uh, not really. Uh, certainly not polite. Um, 
<laughs> I think the, the number one point that I always want to make to people is not that I think everything was brilliant and wonderful in the Middle Ages, or that, you know, people in the Middle Ages were all kind and generous people, or that the church never got anything wrong, or that, you know, Christians couldn't be bigoted and, and, and dogmatic about things. The number one point I want to make is, is that we shouldn't look down on people in the past um, because they thought things that we now think to be wrong. There are many, many, many things that we now think that future generations will believe, and probably even our own children in five years' time will think we are incredibly wrong and foolish about. And so I think it's not morally right. I think it's sort of it's it's selfish and it's supercilious to to look down on other people um, simply because we think they're ignorant. Um, but it's also not productive because it stops us from seeing our own faults. It's a, it's a sort of um, narrow-minded assumption that we know everything there is uh, to be known. And st too much history of science, uh, certainly too much popular history of science, um, presents present understanding as the end point. Um, but no scientist would ever say that science is finished, science is done. So I think that's kind of the point. I suppose if a dinner party people say, um, you know, people in the Middle Ages were stupid. I think, well, think about all the things that we thought about just a few years ago, um, you know, from stomach ulcers being caused by stress to, oh, well, put lead in petrol, that won't cause any problems, um, you know, to all kinds of things uh, that, that are still being worked out and will continue to be worked out forever. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for, for inviting me. If you like what we're doing here, please head to Apple Podcasts and give us a review and let your friends know about our episodes. While you're there, send us a question and I'll try and answer it in an upcoming Q&A episode. Just head to the show notes and you'll see where to send them. Either voicemail so we can play your lovely voices on the podcast or you can just send us an email. While you're there, you'll see the links to Laurel Moffat's beautiful, reflective podcast, Small Wonders. And also Michael Jensen's and Megan Paldatois's excellent, with all due respect. Both of these are part of the Growing Undeceptions Network. See ya. Undeceptions is hosted by me, John Dixon, produced by Kaylee Payne and directed by Mark Hadley, who assures me he knows practically everything that is necessary to know. Editing by Richard Humwee, social media by Sophie Hawkshaw, administration by Lindy Leveston. Our librarian is Siobhan McGuinness. Special thanks to our series sponsor, Zondervan Reflective, for making this Undeception possible. Undeceptions is the flagship podcast of Undeceptions.com, letting the truth out. Undeceptions podcast. <laughs>